0: john 8 verse 39 to 47. see we've entitled it um, two tests of spiritual paternity or fatherhood as we've been going through chapter 8 you'll remember that um, this is a dialogue between jesus and the jews and it's a chapter that escalates in intensity Um, so jesus continues to make claims about himself, which escalates all the way until the very end of the chapter with an unmistakable claim to deity, before Abraham was, I am. He's also pointing out the spiritual condition of these Jews, and as he's doing both of these things, they're responding with escalating opposition to him, anger uh, for what he is is claiming. And what we've been doing as we've been going through chapter 8, I've been highlighting um, some of these just... Clear and powerful statements Christ makes. Last time we were together, um, he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Before that, um, we focused in on the saying, verse 24, Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Before that, he said, I am the light of the world. This morning, he will tell these Jews that you are from your father the devil, not something you say to win friends and influence people, uh, for sure. We're going to see what, uh, what happens. Last time we were together, like I said, we studied verses 31 through 38. Look how verse 38 uh, concludes. Jesus said, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So he concludes this whole section by implying that, yeah, I know you are physical seed of Abraham, you're physical Jews, but you have another father. And that's where um, our passage picks up, picks up this morning. Um, Jesus will continue to reveal the spiritual condition of these people. They they begin looking good, verse 30, it says, many are believing in him. And he confronts them in verse 31 to 32 at this test of a true believer, a true disciple. If you remain, persevere in my word, you're truly my disciples. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Um, They didn't like that. What do I do? We're we're seed of Abraham. What do you mean? Did he set free? We're in spiritual bondage? What are you you talking about? And so that's where our passage is going to, to bring us this morning. It all has to do with spiritual eternity. It has to do with spiritual DNA. So before we jump in this morning, I want to begin by just stating up front what I believe are the two sort of main points this passage is making. Number one, what one does with Jesus and his words reveals the true spiritual condition of that person, who they are, who they belong to. Whether the true seed of Abraham and seed of God or seed of the devil. Jesus says there's only two families in the world. Think back to Genesis 3. (coughs) Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent (coughs) continues until this day. You are one or the other. Your response to Jesus and his truth declare which you are. It's the decisive test. this passage is meant to call us to examine our lives and also to give us sort of a grid work to examine the the lives (laughs) of those around us. Many people profess to be in good relationship with God. Many people claim to have God as their father. Jews, Muslims, religious people of all kinds. Jesus says the decisive test is how you respond to Christ and his words. So that's the first point. The second point of the passage, I think, is that one spiritual condition is the fundamental reason why people respond to Jesus as they do. In other words, people only respond to Jesus in accord with their spiritual DNA, whether it's from God or from the devil. That means your spiritual condition is ultimately not produced by your exercise of faith. Oh, it's absolutely essential you believe. There's no eternal life without it. But ultimately, your belief or unbelief is caused and produced by your spiritual condition. That's what Jesus will make clear for us this morning. This passage is going to zoom into the underlying nature of all believers and unbelievers. It's going to call us to a keener awareness of this doctrine called total depravity. It aims at showing what must take place in an individual before they will believe in Christ. So before we begin, let me just ask you, how would you describe... The doctrine of, of total depravity. <clears throat> Why is that doctrine so important? How would you describe it? <clears throat> yes? My mind went to the beginning of Ephesians 2. Yeah. Excellent. Yep. I have no ability spiritually to respond, I suppose. Very good. Um, so that's what I was thinking. Amen. <clears throat> Spiritual inability uh, by nature, children of wrath. Mm-hmm. Yep. And who is righteous and one. Yeah. So, apart from Christ. It's good. So, yeah. so, so, every act, every action may be good in some sense, but at its core, unrighteousness. Um, right. Any other thoughts? Total you, depravity? Yeah. Yeah, just spiritual deadness. Yeah. Um, contrasted with many would say spiritual sickness. Mm hmm. Kind of, yep. are making mm-hmm. the wrong choices. No, we are. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, there's there's nothing in me that makes me worthy mm-hmm. before God. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yep. Good. You're exactly <clears throat> right. You hit on... There's a number of dimensions to the, this doctrine, and I think you hit most of them. <clears throat> We're fallen and corrupt in every dimension of our being, mind, will, and emotions. It also teaches what... Oh. Chris pointed out that humanity is completely unable to alter his condition or to respond properly to Christ on his on his own. In other things, the in other words, the very thing that necessitates our need for Christ also hinders us from coming to Christ. We're dead. <clears throat> if we get this doctrine wrong, we'll be tempted to neglect or at least dismiss the doctrines of grace, which are proclaimed in the Gospel of John on just about every page. This is the great and important doctrine. The fundamental reason why people insist that conversion is ultimately the result of a person exercising his or her own free will is because of a failure to understand the doctrine of total depravity. Now, Calvinists and Arminians, throughout the controversial terms, Uh, Calvinists and Arminians both affirm that God must work in the heart before people will respond. They both affirm that. Arminians, though, hold that God's grace works in everyone the same and brings everyone to the threshold of salvation, but ultimately, walking across that threshold is the responsibility of each individual. It's up to their free, ultimate self-determination. The scriptures, however, in this passage, however, are going to teach that God takes sinners all the way across the threshold himself. And if he didn't, no one would be saved. Something decisive must take place in our natures first for any belief. So the scriptures teach, one that our condition is so bad that we don't only need assistance we need entire transformation of our natures before any believe God must resurrect them from the dead Ephesians 2 you were dead but God made you alive this doctrine teaches us that man by nature possesses the DNA of the devil in responding to Christ Faith and love is an impossibility unless God causes you first to be born again. That's why we need the new birth. That's why it is so necessary. Yes, your faith is essential. Yes, there's no eternal life without it. But why did you believe and not your brother or your co-worker or your your friend? This is the ultimate reason. Quick clarification before we dive into this. We're not saying that there's a difference between faith and the new birth in timing. We're not saying that the new birth happens and then a few hours later, a few days later, weeks later, faith happens. Or that faith happens and then a few minutes, hours, years later, the new birth (coughs) happens. In Scripture, they're simultaneous. You can never find a person born again who's not believing. And you can never find a person believing He's not been born again. So we're not talking about timing. We're talking about cause and effect. Which caused the other? Did your faith ultimately cause you to be born again? Or did you being born again cause your faith? Scripture is going to teach the latter, and we're going to see that in our passage this morning. So if we get this doctrine wrong, we're going to conclude that the unbelief of humanity is owing to some other factor. Not enough information, not enough proofs. Failure of the church to be relevant. Negative examples of the church. Hypocrites in the church. All those all those things. This doctrine is essential if we're going to rightly understand what is behind any and all unbelief. It's essential if we're going to know what happened to us. What happened to you at conversion? You need to know this. And it's essential as we seek to engage other unbelievers around us. So any questions, comments before we dive into this passage? Your questions will probably be cleared up as we walk through, but anything? before we jump in? Okay, so John eight thirty Two tests. The first test comes... Verses 39 to 41, test 1. True children of Abraham live lives of faith like Abraham. So you remember, the Jews hear what Jesus is saying in verse 38. They hear what he's implying, that they're not true seed of Abraham. And so they respond to verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. It's the second time they appealed to Abraham as their father. The Jews believed that being a Jew, having Abraham as your father, was an automatic entrance into the kingdom. It's all that mattered. You got an exception for being a Jew. They're also the possessors of, of the law of God. And Jesus says those externals don't matter. It's your spiritual DNA that matters. True children of Abraham live lives of faith like Abraham. So look at the test Jesus gives them. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. In other words, Jesus has a category for people being children of Abraham in one sense and not children of Abraham in another most important sense. Not true children of Abraham. A child of Abraham is not one who's merely a physical descendant of him. You see this in in Romans 9, right? Not all descended from Israel are Israel. And Paul gives two examples. First, Ishmael and Isaac both came from Abraham. And Jacob and Esau both came from Abraham. But not all were automatic heirs. There's another factor. You have to be a child like Isaac child of promise, someone that God, and only God, could create. God's covenant promises have never been guaranteed for physical offspring alone. Jesus says you must be a true child of Abraham. So what are the works that Abraham did? What do you think? What what is Jesus talking about here? (coughs) If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Amen. That's it. Yeah, Romans 4. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So let me show you the passage. I have Romans 4 up here. Um, Abraham, everywhere, is known as the man of, of faith. And not just faith, but a life of obedience that flowed from his faith in, in God. Genesis 15:6. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Slain of Isaac. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son. Chapter 26, 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and commandments and statutes and my laws. He's a man of faith, filled with obedience. Romans 4, uh, 16 through 21. Just look at the places I have underlined. underlined. Depends on faith to one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. Father of everyone who has faith. And hope, he believed against hope. He should be the father of many nations as he had been told. There it is, the promise, the word of God. He believed it and he acted on it. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in the faith. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do he had promised. That is the works of Abraham. Jesus says a true child of Abraham lives that kind of a life, of faith like Abraham. Evidence of being a true child of Abraham is a similar life of of faith. So it ultimately matters. Only these get into the, the kingdom. Unbelievers naturally depend on superficial factors. They still do in our world. And our job as we confront them and share Christ to them is to make them aware of the spiritual realities, the only factors that matter. Bring tests like this to bear on their lives. This is the only thing that matters in God's economy. So faithful actions of true children of Abraham testify to their identity. But I think Jesus has given us a little bit more than just a test here. And we're going to see this certainly in the rest of the passage. I think he's saying something a bit, a bit more. I think he's also saying that being a child of Abraham in your nature leads to living this kind of a life. Look what he says again. If you were children of Abraham, there's your identity, then you would be doing the works Abraham did. Where did these works come from? It comes from having a changed identity, being a true child of Abraham, It's the fundamental cause of faith, and that's going to become very clear as we, as we move on. So that's the test. True children of Abraham live lives of faith like Abraham. Now Jesus moves on to expose these, these Jews. Um, number one, false children of Abraham are exposed in their hostile opposition to God's word. Look at verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. Abraham was a man of faith in God's word, but these Jews are responding to God's word by trying to kill it. The true disposition in people's hearts towards God are exposed. They say they're lovers of God. They say they know God. It's pulled out by the word made flesh it's going to happen to us as well as we speak truth to the lives of other people they may even be in the church but as the truth comes to bear on them they don't like it they press against it it's revealing something about their their hearts I think something else is happening here is that Jesus is the greatest revelation from God. And the more revelation you get, the more opposition it's going to, to bring. Look what he says again. But you, now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is greatest, most clear revelation God has ever given through his Son, If there was a question, look back at 38, where did Jesus get his words? He said, I speak what I have seen with my Father. Now he makes it absolutely clear. He's talking about God. He said, which I heard from God. He's come from God, seen God, heard God, been sent by God. And it's the final revelation of God to man. Because of that, depraved man responds to him with even greater hatred and unbelief. That brings us to verse 41. False children of Abraham have another father. So look at verse 41. You are doing the works of your father. If it's not Abraham, then Jesus must be saying that they're descended from some other father. Their works reveal they have another father than Abraham. They're not people of faith. They're murderers of God's word. So that's test one. True children of Abraham live lives of faith like Abraham, but false children are exposed in the response to the words of Christ. What do they do with them? Do they submit to them? Do they hear them? Obey them? Or do they resist them and suppress away? Brings us to number two. True children of God love Jesus. True children of God love Jesus. So the Jews are obviously quite offended um, at what Jesus has just said, what he's implying. So they respond to him now in verse 41, second half. Look what they say. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, of fornication. So what does that mean? It's possible that this is an underhanded way of shaming Jesus. It's possible that rumors of his birth circulated. People didn't know the full story. Mary conceived Jesus before marriage. We know the true story. We know he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. It's possible that this is a way of shaming Jesus. They say, we're not illegitimate children like you. It's also possible that they took his words too literally which happens all the time in, in John, as though Jesus were implying that their physical lineage has somehow been corrupted by immorality or even by mixing with a foreign, foreign people. Look at verse 48. This is exactly what they accuse Jesus of. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You're not a true Israelite, and you're of the devil, is what they accuse Jesus of, and Jesus actually turns it around in our passage and says, no, it's actually... It's actually you. But either way, whatever they're trying to imply with this statement, we're not born from sexual morality, their uh, main point is the same. They said, We have one father, even God. So now they're not content just saying, Hey, we're children of Abraham. We are children of God. Where did the Jews get this concept that they are children of, of God? Let me show you a few. Passages here. Exodus 4 Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Jeremiah 31. God says, For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hosea 11 When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So when the Jews say this, they are certainly looking back to things the Old Testament had, had said. They said, we're, we're children of, of, of God. But Jesus is going to make the same point here that he did before. Look at the test he gives in verse 42. He said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. If God were your father, you would love me. This is the evidence that one is of God. God, love for Jesus. All people out there in the world, you go ask them, are you a child of, of God? 99% are going to say yes. Religious people, Jews, Muslims, or even just religious people in our in our world. There's a thing that sort of started earlier in the, in the, in the 20th century Really emphasizing the universal fatherhood of, of God and, and modernism and liberalism as, as it spread. Everyone is a child of, of God. Back when May May taught at Randolph, I remember driving down Rivermont, and there's a really liberal church. They have a rainbow flag and everything hanging out there, and big sign, we're all God's children. And uh, I've always been tempted to go scribble John 8, or something like that. There's no such thing as the universal fatherhood of God. You can't find it in the Bible. Uh, We are not all God's children. And Jesus gives us the test here. Um, What's the test? The test that you're God's children is that you love Jesus. You love Jesus. So, what does that look like? A lot of people say they love Jesus, right? Um, What's the test? What what does it mean to love Jesus? You obey him. You obey him. That's it. You keep his commandments. Flip over to chapter 14. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not simply, if you love me, go keep my commandments. He's given a test. If you love me, this is the necessary result. You will be keeping my commandments. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Then in verse 23, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then again in verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Evidence that you're a child of God is that you love Jesus. Evidence that you love Jesus is that you obey him. From a life of faith, you trust him. You love him because he first loved you. Another thing it looks like to love Jesus is that you love other Christians. Look at chapter 13. We go to many places, go to First John, everywhere, but just look at verse 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. That one another in the passage is clearly the disciples, other believers. You love one another, a unique love for the family of God. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Only people who respond to Jesus in this way give evidence that they are truly children of God. But why? Look at verse 42. Look at the reason now. The reason God's children love Jesus. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So why do children love Jesus? It's because of his eternal divine nature. He came from God. So if the previous point emphasized faith in his word, then this point emphasizes love for his nature, his essence. He came from God. As readers of John, we know he was with God in the beginning. Jesus just declared to this crowd that he is, I am, identical with Yahweh of the Old Testament. It's a contradiction to say you love God and hate the one who is the very essence of God, very God, a very God himself. It'd be a contradiction to claim love for God and, and not love his, his son. Look at the other reason, second half of verse 42, his representative coming. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So not only is Jesus of the same nature and substance as the Father, but he's come to represent the Father in his perfect and perfect harmony with the Father's plan. He's come not to win the approval of man, but only do what the Father's given him to do. That's why God's children love Jesus. They love the Father because they're born of the Father, and they love Jesus because he has come from from God. But these Jews and the rest of the world don't love Jesus. They hate him. And so Jesus now is going to zero in on the underlying spiritual condition. And this is sort of the main point of the passage, what we've been preparing for. What is it that's causing them to respond to Jesus in this this way? If they're not children of God, then whose children are they? Look at verses 43 and 46. The reason mankind rejects Jesus first reason, verse 43, their total inability to hear Christ. Why do you not understand what I say? Here's the reason. It is because you cannot, you are unable to hear my word. Over and over in this gospel, if you've been with us for any time, the Jews are constantly misunderstanding Christ, right? They're misinterpreting him. They're missing the spiritual significance of what he's saying. Um, They're missing uh, the the, the realities which are behind his words. So Jesus is going to what's under that? Where's that coming from? Is is it that Jesus is a poor communicator? Is he just confusing in his words what's going on? Jesus has given us the answer here. Why don't you understand? The answer is because you're not able to hear my words. His word is the sum total of his teaching. Everything that he teaches, all that he declares to be true, these people are unable to hear. And hearing, obviously, does not mean just having the vibrations tickle your eardrums. That's not what he means. It's a hearing with faith, a hearing and responding with faith and submission to what Christ declares. Jesus (coughs) says mankind is unable to respond to him that way. Go back to chapter 6. We already saw this. When we were in chapter six, I'll show you one verse. We can go to several. This is Jesus' declaration of the total inability of man to respond to Christ on his own. Chapter six, verse forty four. No one can come to me. It's the same phrase in Greek no one is able to come to me, with one exception, unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one is able. That's what he says here. No one is able to hear my word. It's the fundamental reason why people don't understand Christ. Go over to chapter 7, verse 17. Let me show you. He says something very, very similar there. Chapter 7, 17, he says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, so if someone's desire is to do God's desire, Then he will know. Same word. He will understand whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. The fundamental reason here why people know and understand Jesus' teaching is because they have a desire for God's desires. The reason they don't understand is they don't have God's desires. In our passage where we were this morning, it's that they are unable to hear. So I think you bring those two together, it's saying that this inability is an inability of desire. It's an inability that comes from desires. I love things contrary to God so much that I'm unable to hear them. Listen to D.A. Carson, how he puts it here. Oops. It is not that his idiom, the particular way Jesus dresses his message, is so difficult that they cannot comprehend what he's trying to say. That would suggest the fault is with him. He is a poor communicator. Rather, because they cannot truly hear, including obey his message, i.e., the thrust of his word, the content of the revelation of the incarnate word. Therefore, they are unable to grasp the meaning of his outward speech. The flaw, therefore, is not with the communicator, but with those whose values and prejudices make them constitutionally unable to hear. Underlying a person's persistent misunderstanding, misapplying, lack of desire to know and understand the Bible is a deeper spiritual problem, hard-hearted refusal to submit. They don't want the sharp, clear teachings and implications of the scriptures. Those desires produce a kind of fog and clouds out moral and doctrinal clarity. Don't have time, but for an example of this, you go to First Timothy and, and hear how Paul describes the, the false teachers there. Where's their false teaching coming from? It's coming from a defiled conscience, a heart that has wandered away from moral moral clarity. But what is under underlying this inability to hear him? Well, now Jesus is going a little bit deeper, verses 44 through 40. It's because they possess the devil's DNA. Look at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father lies. Jesus says, clearly, hear just who their father is. It's not Abraham, it's the devil. They possess the DNA of the devil, and that makes them unable to hear Christ. Their condition is the cause of their unbelief. Do you see that? They possess the DNA of the devil, and therefore they cannot hear. It affects their entire life. Why they can't hear, it's, they're encoded with the devil's desires. They have an inability because of their DNA. And this is manifested in, in two ways. It's manifested in their depraved desires. It says, your desire is to do your father's desire. Fundamental difference between a child of God and a child of the devil is desire. Children of God desire Christ, children of the devil desire to sin again we don't have time, you can go to 1 John chapter 3 where John unpacks this Um, those who continue in sin, he calls children of, of the devil this is also why people will be punished for their unbelief you say well Michael if people are unable to respond to Christ, if it's an inability, how can they be morally responsible, how can God punish them Right? It's because it's an inability of desire. So it's not as though these people are tied down to a chair and they're being commanded, get up, get up. And they're trying to get up. I want to and I can't. I'm tied. That's not what's going on. You see, it's an inability of desire. They love their chair. They love their rebellion. They love life without God. They're commanded to stand. I don't want to. And I don't want to so much. It's an inability to hear The DNA of the devil is also manifested in a devilish lifestyle, verses 44 to 46. Jesus says that he was a a murderer from the beginning, a lifestyle of murder. He was a murderer. He plunged the entire human race into death, Genesis 3. His first seed was Cain, who was of the offspring of the devil, a murderer. It's exactly what this crowd is doing. Also in their lifestyle of opposition to the, to the truth. Look at the very end of verse 44. It says, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, because he's a liar and the, and the father of lies. Before that, it says that he does not have anything to do with the truth. It's literally, he does not stand in the truth. So why does the devil not stand in the truth? Why doesn't he have association with the truth? Jesus tells us, because there is no truth in him. You see it again? You must have truth in you first before you will respond to the truth, before you'll stand in the truth. And that's exactly what's going on with this crowd. Look now at verse 45. Jesus says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. It's because of their absolute opposition to the truth. They don't have truth in them. Their DNA is encoded with lies. And therefore, they don't have anything to do with, with the truth. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 25. It's the condition of all man. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. That is the default desire of man. I want to live a life autonomous from God. That's what Adam and Eve chose when they ate the fruit. I want life apart from God. Erase God from my memory, or at least the personal God of Scripture. And that's a lie, because God is the real God. He is there. He is the true God. But man would desire a world without God. But why do they do that? Because there's no truth in them. Their DNA is encoded lies. So Jesus now goes on in, in verse 46. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Evidence that he's speaking the truth is that there's no sin in him. He claims sinless perfection here. He says, find sin in my life and a There's no sin that you can point out that testifies to the authenticity of my words. I am not lying. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe. Verse 45 again. It's not despite the fact that he tells the truth they don't believe. Notice it's primarily because he tells the truth that they do not believe. So that brings us now to the answer to his final question verse 47 he ends verse 46 by saying why do you not believe me if I'm telling the truth and if it's clear it's truth my sinless life he gives the final answer divine paternity produces a submissive faith to Christ look at verse 47a whoever is of God hears the words God. Jesus here tells us what must happen if any are going to believe. You must be from God. You must have DNA that is produced from God. Only those hear and respond to his words. So yes, is your faith important for becoming a Christian? absolutely is. You must believe. But what's underlying that faith? It is the regenerating work of of God. Let me show you one passage here. Go to chapter 1. John chapter 1 in his prologue. Because we get both of these things, I think, in the order John wants us to see. John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, so some received him, And they believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. So being a child of God is in one sense the result of believing. Absolutely. You believe, you become a child of God. He gives you the right to become a child of God. Where did these people come from? Some people reject him. Some people believe. Look at verse 13. These ones were born. Not from blood nor from the will of the flesh nor from the will of man but born from God. It's the new birth which is underlying any and all saving faith. Finally, into verse 47 passage here. The reason why you do not hear is that you are not from God. Notice he does not say you're not from God because you do not hear. He says you don't hear because you're not from God. He's going to say the same thing in chapter 10. He says you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. He doesn't say you're not part of my flock because you don't believe. Being a sheep enables you to believe. So I have a few implications for you at the, at the back and we, we are over time. Any questions, comments on this passage here. Yes? So you're saying that you are saved, therefore you have faith. Instead of you are, you have faith, therefore you are saved. So salvation is the entire package. By grace you're saved through faith. Faith is the means whereby God saves us, right? So John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the son of man must be lifted up. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Eternal life comes by means of faith. But what's underlying that faith? It is the regenerating work of God which creates and enables faith, right? So I would say the new birth is, the, is an entire package. It includes the giving of life, the, the recreation of a, of a soul through the hearing of the gospel, through the hearing of the word, giving ears and eyes to see Christ, resulting in faith in him, which results in the gift of eternal life. It's an instantaneous event sound like the rebirth happens mm-hmm. and then that opens up you to have faith instead of yeah. it's your faith in Jesus' work, therefore you have the rebirth mm-hmm. yeah, so it's a, which is most fundamental, is the most fundamental thing faith, or is the most fundamental thing new birth I it's say faith in Jesus, mm-hmm. gives you the rebirth, in one sense it does but in another sense it doesn't, so if y'all don't mind, one minute, go to 1 John chapter 5, and I'll show you, that, I think this is the definitive text 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. The tenses of the verbs are absolutely important. Everyone who believes, present tense, believes that Jesus is the Christ, perfect tense, has been born of God. The new birth there is the fundamental cause. They have been evidence, they're believing. And if you say, I don't know about that, that exact construction is used earlier for love. Whoever loves has been born of God. Well, no one's going to say love produces the new birth. It's clearly the new birth that's producing love, right? That's because the born thing is an instant thing Mm -hmm. that has happened. Just like you have life because Mm -hmm. you've been born. Mm -hmm. So you have life present tense because you were born, right? But that's saying that you believe, therefore you have been born, but you are constantly in belief, mm-hmm. It's like because you can't lose your faith, mm-hmm. because once you're born again, you're born again, so like in Ephesians 2.8, for grace you have been saved through faith, it doesn't say you've been saved, therefore you have faith, mm-hmm. Uh, and that now of yourselves. It is a gift of God. That it is referring back to the entire package of grace through faith. Yeah, that Even right. the faith. And we can go to a number of texts in Paul where the calling of God is decisive, creating the faith. God giving faith as a gift. God giving repentance as, as a gift. So absolutely faith is important. But ultimately, the new birth is decisive. God first causes you to be born again, producing faith, and just the examination of the spiritual DNA concept—if he didn't, no one's going to believe DNA of the devil never responds. Right, but he, give, he opens devil. your eyes to, to the thing, mm-hmm. but you're not born again prior to the thing. Sure, we can discuss it if you want yeah. a little bit more after. No, on, but it's, it's not an easy topic. It's—it's it's controversial, for sure. Um, so great. You can look at the implications on the uh, on the back of your. Um, your, your sheet there. I'll let you other you go, so you can get a uh, so you can get a uh, seat. Father, we thank you for your word. I ask that you would uh, bless it, produce fruit in our lives through it. We love you. Prepare our hearts for the service to come. In Jesus' name, Amen.